You know, life has a way of beating us up. I think if 2020 has taught us anything, it, it might be that. To always be on your guard, to always be ready for a fight, to protect yourself because you never know what's about to come. And because life beats us up so many times in every area of our lives, what we've done is we've conditioned ourselves to put up walls, to live life with our fists up, ready to battle. But here's the problem, is we've taken that mentality and when we show up to one of our auditoriums or we log online, we bring that, those fists and we bring those walls before God. And I think sometimes it keeps us from receiving the very thing that God wants to give to us because we have our walls and our hands up ready to fight. And what if today as Christians we changed our posture? Where instead of a fight, God, it's got to, I'm, I'm just ready to receive from you. I'm ready to, to gain life from the giver of life rather than having walls keeping me from you. I have no clue why you logged online or you're watching on your TV or you showed up to one of our campuses. But my prayer today is that you walked here not with your walls up, but with your hands out ready for God to give you exactly what you need. And so this is gonna stretch us a little bit. It might even be a little bit weird. I'm okay with weird. You guys know I'm a weirdo. I would just ask you right now, whether you're watching online on your computer, stand up, whatever you gotta do, would you just put your hands out just like this? That you put your mind and your heart and your body in a posture where you're like, God, I'm just desperate for you today. God, I need you today. My life is falling apart. God, my life might be great. My life might be difficult. But today I'm, I'm openly dropping down my walls because I want you. So let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you that you know in, in, in the midst of thousands of people who call Northridge Church home, you know our story individually. You know exactly what we're struggling with. You know exactly what we're going through. And you choose to meet us right where we are in the chair or at our house or watching our TV. God, we pray with our hands held out. We want to receive from you today. We want to know what you have for us, whether it's a rebuke or encouragement, whether it's to pick us up or to course correct us. This is your church, God. And so we pray that you would meet us in the middle of our circumstances and that you would speak directly to us and that we would walk away from here different because of you, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat at all of our locations. Welcome to Northridge Church. Thanks for being here this morning. We are excited to have you here, and I, don't, I mean that. We are so excited that you would choose uh, to take a piece of your weekend and hang out with us. We're honored to have you. I want to welcome our campuses, those of you who are watching online. Thanks for being here this morning, and welcome home. And if you got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to jump to, to Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. You got your Bibles, your devices, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 1 and 2, because we're, we're starting a brand new series this morning we called Moses. And for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at maybe one of the most influential leaders in the entire history of the nation of Israel. Moses was a, a great leader, and we're going to see some amazing things that God did through his life, but we're also going to see some downfalls and some mistakes that he made. 
And throughout these eight weeks, I think here's what you're going to see as a constant theme is the nation of Israel was imperfect. Moses, although he did some phenomenal, uh, miraculous things, he was an imperfect leader. But yet they were surrounded by a perfect God. And so I'm excited to dive in this series with you for the next eight weeks. I think we're going to learn and grow a lot together. And I want to start by, maybe, maybe you've been here before where you've had expectations of something. You know, you had dreams and hopes of, of what something was going to be like. But when those expectations crashed into reality, it left you disappointed, maybe frustrated or hurt. Maybe it was last Father's Day, you know, you love to grill and your grill is getting rusty, things are falling apart, and you know what, you thought, hey, my family knows this, maybe for Father's Day they're going to replace my grill, it's going to be brand new, I can't wait, and you were a little bit disappointed when you got dress socks for work. <laughs> or maybe you're newlyweds, and you know, you, you, you had this picture of what marriage and your spouse was going to be like, and you stood at that altar and you said, I do, it was beautiful, and then you stepped into marriage and... It wasn't what you expected. It was different, and maybe it shocked you and frustrated you with your marriage. Or maybe it's that first job or that new job or that promotion where you signed that contract with the, the big company and you couldn't wait to get to work because you know what? You were gonna decorate your office. It was gonna look good. You're gonna sit in your chair and look at the view and you got to work that day and they put you in a cubicle and you realize for the rest of your career you're gonna look at blue mesh all day long. I think we have all been there before where we've had expectations of something or someone, and when those expectations hit reality, we were frustrated. And you know what, as Christians, we can do that with God. Because maybe we know the promises of God. We, we've read his word, and we know what God's word says about us and what it has for us. And so we take the promises of God and what we do is we put expectations on how God is gonna actually fulfill those promises. And when God doesn't take the route that we would choose or the one that we thought he would, it leaves us disappointed, frustrated with God. And as we set the scene of, of Moses' life early on, we're gonna see that happen to the nation of Israel. Because God made them a promise. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram as he's getting ready to form the nation of Israel. And look what he says to Abram. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse all people on earth will be blessed through you. What a promise. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd love God to say that over my life. And so Abram, he leaves his family and everything he knows, and God says, I'm going I'm to build a great nation through you, the nation of Israel, ultimately. And he pours this promise over Abraham's life and the future generation of Israel. He says, hey, you're going to be great, and, and I'm going to bless you and bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. But as we get closer to Moses' life, here's what we're going to find out. God's promises usually don't travel on the path that we would pick or we would choose. 
I think we have to understand this, even in our current, uh, our current circumstances. Is, as a new believer, you have to understand this, and as a mature believer, you have to be reminded of this constantly in life, is that God has promises for your life, but you can bet money that they're not going to pan out the way you think they should. God usually takes unique routes that we often never can see. And we have to be reminded of this constantly, and so did Israel. Because God makes this promise over the great nation of Israel, but we get to Exodus. Years later, we're introduced to another person. His name is Joseph. Verse six of chapter one, it says, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, yet God is continuing to, he's fulfilling his promise. They're growing. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became numerous that the land was filled with them. So after Abram, was this man named Joshua. God is continuing to fill his promise. Or Joseph. And, and Joseph, he, he's the one who brought the nation of Israel to Egypt because when he was a young boy, he was sold into slavery. He landed as a slave in Egypt. And through this roller coaster of a life, he becomes second in charge of all of Egypt. A Hebrew, an Israelite in charge, second in charge of all of Egypt. Crazy to think about. God used him to save them from a huge famine. But here's what happens 200, 300 years later, after Joseph dies, the generations dies, guess what happened? The Egyptians forgot all that the Israelites did for the nation of Egypt. And so now a new Pharaoh arrives, a new king arrives, and he's got a different plan. Verse eight, it says, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And so this new Pharaoh steps in. He has no clue what Joseph had done for the Egyptians. No one knows, and so he comes in, and he realizes, man, Israel, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, are growing in numbers. We can't control them. And if they join enemy forces, we're in trouble. And so he comes up with this twofold solution to his problem. The first one is he says, hey, we're going to enslave the Israelites. Think about that, right? If you're an Israelite, wait, hold on a second, God. You made this promise to us that we were going to be great and you were going to curse those who curse us. Wait, now we're slaves? That doesn't seem to line up with my expectations of what you had for me, God. But this Pharaoh enslaves them, forcing them to do labor, to build the Egyptian empire. And it gets worse, actually. That was the first part of his, his solution. The second got worse. Verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Wow, sick and twisted, right? But that is the actual setting of when Moses is getting ready to come to earth. This is the scene that really, this order is when Moses is, God is getting ready to bring Moses onto the story. In fact, Exodus 2 verse 1, it says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So for the very first time, we're introduced to the man we know as Moses. And ladies, can you imagine this? Right? In our culture today, pregnancy is something to, to be celebrated, 
something to anticipate, right? You have nine months to plan and get ready for your life changing, but you can't wait. You, you decorate the room, you get things ready. It's, it's a joyous season in your life because life is, is about to come. You cannot wait. But can you imagine how Moses' mother must have felt? Can you imagine what her one sole prayer was? God, please, just let it be a girl. God, just let it be a girl, please. For nine months, that was probably her prayer because she knew if she gave birth to a son, he wouldn't last long. It would be a celebration and then a funeral because that son would be thrown into the Nile River to drown. And so they didn't have ultrasounds back then. And so nine months of waiting and praying and she gives birth to a son. And for three months, her, her one thing is to protect her baby boy, to watch over him. Moms, can you imagine that? The stress of that pregnancy. But as you know, babies grow. Babies get louder. And after three months of hiding him with everything she's got, she realizes he's too loud and he's too big to hide. What does she do? Verse three, it says, but when she, got, she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So Moses' mom can't protect her child anymore. And so she probably, all throughout her pregnancy, probably thought of this plan. Strategizing, how do I keep my son alive? And she puts him in this basket and she just guides him along the, 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 the Nile and hoping that someone, some Egyptian will find him, take pity on him and ultimately take him into their house. And, and as we look at the beginning of Moses' story, I want us to see two things up front. Two, I think, very important things. The first thing I want us to see is the fearlessness of Moses' mother. I mean, what a bold and courageous woman. Can you imagine walking in her shoes, trying to celebrate the, the birth of your son, but yet all you have to do is, is, is fight for his life every single day? And not only if you fight for his life and are you successful, the bad news for Moses' mom is she was successful. And guess what that meant, moms? she would have to give up her son to her enemy. She was, I mean, hey, someone took pity. It was Pharaoh's daughter. They, they found her, it was like, oh, she gave him back to Moses to raise until he was around probably 10 or 12 years old. And, and now Moses' mother has to give up her son to the very people who are trying to kill her people. That doesn't feel like success, does it? Probably for most moms. But this woman was fearless. She was courageous, she was bold. And actually Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the faith chapter. Look what it says about Moses' family. It says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. And look at this line, it says, they were not afraid of the king's 
edict. How in the world do you live in those circumstances as a mom and not be afraid, not worry? But she didn't. Why? Because her faith was in something way bigger than Pharaoh's power. It was in God. And the second thing we see kind of plays from that is we see the protection and the advantage God gives his deliverer. You see, you don't miss out on the sovereignty of God playing out here. God knows exactly what he's doing when Moses was born at this season in this time frame. And he's protecting this baby boy. Why? Because he has a specific plan. What's nice about the Bible is we know the ending of the story. We know exactly maybe who Moses is. He becomes the deliverer of the nation of Israel. And God is protecting this little baby boy because he has future plans for him. He's going to use him in amazing ways. And not only did God protect Moses, but he gave him this unique advantage. Think about this for a second. Moses is the deliverer of the nation of Israel. And guess where he spends a majority of his first 40 years? Living inside the palace of the Egyptians. Why is that an advantage? Well, he, for almost 40 years of his life, got to see how they live, know what makes them tick, understand their way of living. Do you think that was an advantage when he would come back and speak to Pharaoh himself? He was like this sleeper cell spy in enemy territory, and no one knew it. And so as we look at the beginning of Moses' story, it's, it's tumultuous, it's crazy, it's, it's wild, it's scary. And I think there are three major things that we can learn from the beginning of the deliverer of the nation of Israel. Three things that I think will penetrate our hearts and our minds and our lives today. The first thing I think we need to learn is we can't confuse God's silence with his absence. We, are, we, we can't choose in, in the seasons of our life where God isn't speaking to us, where we feel like God has abandoned us. We, we can't allow when we need something from God and he doesn't come through to replace his silence with the fact that God has left us. Can you imagine the Israelites? Generation after generation have, 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 told, uh, have been told about the promise that God has for them. You're going to be a great nation. God's going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And yet they find themselves in slavery, praying over and over and over and over again that God would deliver them, fulfill his promise to them. And it would have been easy for them to just assume God had abandoned them. God had given up on them because he hasn't spoken. He hasn't done anything. But we, in life, it's very hard to do, but we can't choose. In the seasons where we don't feel God's presence, when we don't see God working, we can't choose to believe that God has abandoned us because we know the promises of God that he will never leave us nor forsake us. God's silence does not equal his absence. Why is that? Well, because of the second point, because God's plans often begin without notice. I think this is one of my favorite things about the beginning of Moses' life, is here, God brings forth the deliverer of the nation of Israel out of slavery, and guess what? Not one person knows it. No one has any clue. Not Pharaoh's daughter who's adopting him. I'm sure if she knew that Moses was the deliverer, she probably wouldn't accepted him to her house. I mean, it says in scripture that Moses' mom thought he was a fine child, that he was not ordinary, but what mom doesn't think that about their kids, right? Like, my kid's going to be the best. Mm-hmm, sure he is. God is bringing forth the deliverer, and absolutely no one can see it. 
The entire nation of Israel who've been praying for freedom, freedom. Well, their deliverer had arrived and they just don't know it yet. And what we have to understand is when we feel this way with God, we don't see him working. We we don't feel his presence. Usually God is working behind the scenes of our life and he's getting ready to show us something about him that we haven't seen yet. Think about it. We're, We're getting ready to celebrate one of my favorite holidays. It's called Christmas. December 25th, God's greatest act. And guess what? On the very first Christmas, God brings the savior of the world and barely anybody knows. The king of kings and the Lord of lords who left heaven and came to earth and he didn't have this triumphal entry like, hello, everybody, the savior of the world has arrived. No, he's born in a food trough of an animal. A couple shepherds and some kings came. But the vast majority of the world, guess what? They had no clue that their redeemer, their rescuer was on the scene. Why is that? It's because often God works behind the scenes before he shows his plan to us. And man, sometimes we can't see what God is doing, but we have to choose to trust that he will come through even when we don't think he's going to. And so we can't replace his silence with his absence, and we gotta trust he's working behind the scenes. And number three, we have to understand that God's plans are bigger than our timetable. (laughs) You know, one of the hardest things to do as as a Christ follower is to wait on God. I mean, it's so hard, and especially in our culture, we live in a culture that we want it, and we want it now. It's fast food, it's fast paced, like we want God, and and so many of us are like, God, I've prayed for this like three times, why haven't you answered me? That's the culture we live in, and we we, we don't like to wait, And, and can I just admit to you, oh, I hate waiting. Like patience is not a virtue for me. (laughs) I get so frustrated waiting. Maybe the only thing I have patience for is the cowboys because I've been waiting 25 years for them to do something. (laughs) Oh, listen, Bills fan, you don't laugh at me. (laughs) I hate to wait. It's agonizing. In fact, it's not just a God thing. It's just like an everyday thing. I'm just kind of, you know, this is counseling for me as much as it is for you. And so, you know, I I think of the times in in my family where I don't like to wait, just practical things. You know, one of my favorite times in our house is 8.30 at night. The kids are asleep, (laughs) and it's just me and my wife. And we'll watch some shows together. We'll talk together. It's like my favorite time of the day because I finally get unadulterated time with with my bride. And every once in a while, you guys know this about Ashley, is she's the healthy person. I am not. (laughs) But every once in a while, I can get Ashley to come to my side when it comes to sweets. She has a sweet tooth, she does. And so, you know, we'll be sitting on our couch and I'll I'll be hanging out and you know, the problem is we live like a mile from Dairy Queen. And so I'll sit on the couch and be like, hey baby, you want a blizzard? <laughs> oh, you don't? Me neither. I was just, just making sure you're good. Oh, you do? Okay, just stay there. Don't change your mind because I'm going to Dairy Queen. But you would think at 9 o'clock at night, like, there shouldn't be a line at Dairy Queen. But I don't know why every other husband has the exact same plan as I do because I drive to Dairy Queen at nine every once in a while and there's like 25 cars in the parking lot. I'm like, what is going on? Is there a sale and I don't know about it? And I'm not lying, I sit in my truck and I wait and I sweat and I get angry 
I turn the radio on. I'm like, worship music, please. It doesn't help sometimes. I'm just like, God, I, I get so frustrated. Something that should take 30 seconds, and I'm here for 30 minutes. And I bet you guys can relate, especially when it comes to God. Because we don't like to wait on God, especially when we really need something from God. God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me, God? Can you imagine the nation of Israel? They've been waiting for over 300 years for God to fulfill his promise that they probably had expectations of and it wasn't going the way they thought it would. Where have you gone, God? And what do we do when we feel this way? How do we navigate the season that the Israelites are in that so many of us are in right now where we're waiting on God to do something? We're begging. How do we, how do we handle that? What should our response be? And I think we have to learn and we have to believe God has our best in mind. This is really hard to do. To believe that even though you're on a different path than you thought you'd be on, to know that God has your best in store for you. Can I tell you, God's plans for your life might not be your plans, probably aren't your plans, and you have to be okay with that. God's plans will often disappoint you and not meet your expectations, but you still have to believe that it's the best option because it's God's plan for your life and not yours. Think about this. If you read the Bible, God has this resume of, of choosing uncanny ways of doing things. I mean, even Moses is a great example of this. God's getting ready to choose a stuttering murderer to deliver the nation of Israel. How many people would have picked that guy to do what he did? God did. And guess what? It worked. Think about stories in the Bible, Jericho, right? Joshua is leading the nation of Israel to this fortified city, stone walls that can't be penetrated, and somehow they have to defeat this city. And so Joshua sends in two spies to find a weakness, somewhere to attack for the Israelite army. And God comes to Joshua, he's like, hey, don't worry about that. I've got a plan. Let's just march around the city seven times, and on the seventh time, we're all just going to yell and blow our horns. And don't worry, the, the walls will come crashing down. Seriously, God, that's your plan. That's what you want me to do. Look like a moron in front of the entire army. But guess what? Those walls came a crashing down. Because God's way is always the best way. Even if we don't like it or we wouldn't choose it. So here's my question for you. Where is the area of your life right now that you want God to work and you don't feel like he is? I mean, this is the moment where we drop our walls and, and we, we receive from God. Where is that for you right now? What is that area where you're begging God? You're, you need God to intervene. You need him to come through and, and you feel like he's failed you, like he's given up on you. He's silent on you. What is that area in your life? Maybe for some of us right now, it's our marriage. COVID has brought us together and maybe that's not the best thing for us and it's, it's caused struggle or maybe you've had struggle in your marriage for, for years and you've prayed, God, restore this, bring us back together, God, help us and nothing's changed and you wonder where God is for help 
Or maybe it's your job right now. Your business is is failing. This whole season in life has caused turmoil in your business and you can't even pay your bills right now. You're trying to navigate how you're gonna take care of your family and you've been praying, God. you, You say you're my provider. You're Jehovah Jireh. Like, come on, God, I need you to come through. And nothing has happened. God, where did you go? What is that area in your life right now where you need God, desperate for him, And you feel like he's failing you. See, in those seasons, and in those circumstances, we have to choose to to believe God has our best in mind. And that his path is better than our path. And I think if anybody knows this, it would be a woman in our church named Erin Wagner and her family. You might not know Erin. You've probably seen her in our lobby at our Rochester campus. Erin is what I like to call the boss of Northridge Church. She's my assistant. And she's a woman, and her family means a lot to our family because Erin's leadership in in our family has been great because in a season where my family has walked through difficult things, Erin and her family have always been there for us. And this morning, I want to honor her first and just let you know as a church how influential she is here for Northridge Church. She works behind the scenes regularly. She never is in the spotlight, but man, does she have an impact on this place, and man, has she has an impact on this heart. But Aaron and her husband, Aaron, it's kind of weird, Aaron and Aaron, they walked through an incredible difficult journey just a couple years ago. Just like Moses' mother, they were getting ready to celebrate the birth of a new child but God had a different path than what they would choose. Check this out. When we had our first, who was a joy, we we were thinking like maybe one one or two is good. And it took us a little while to be ready for, for going again. When we found out we were pregnant for the second time, we were for the most part very excited um, and eager. Um, for the pregnancy to get started. And all of our doctor's appointments early, everything seemed fine and great and, um, you know, progressed. We had lots of pictures to share and ultrasounds. We went to our 20-week ultrasound um, at our OB's office. And um, while she was taking some of the pictures, she said, you know, I really can't get good images of his heart. Um, I'd like to see a little bit more. So they just kind of had some questions. So then at the end of it, they had us go into the doctor's office, which was right across the hall. And um, essentially she said, you know, there are some problems with your baby's heart. And for me, I felt like a bomb had just been dropped on me. I didn't have any idea that something was wrong. Um, I just sat there and cried and cried and cried and cried. And um, she kind of turned to Erin like, okay, she can't handle this right now. Here are some of the things that you need to know and just kind of started talking with him. I was very focused on like, what are you, like, what is it? actually happening what are you saying to us right now like I'm thinking through like all the logical reasons why like this is gonna be okay like and she's losing it on the way to the car (laughs) no he he, we're not prepared for this like we've never yeah 
I just felt like we'd never gone through anything like that before. And like we had to, we, I started driving and then I was like, this isn't happening. So I, we drove around to the other side of the hospital and I parked and we lost it. I think I was okay until I started thinking about um, Ellie, our youngest, and how like, how we were gonna process that with her and like how excited she was and she was, you know, she's like mini Aaron, so she's like, she's like processing and excited and exhilarated it's about just the like whole process. She's like a little mama, yeah. And and thinking as a dad, thinking about having to tell her at some point and trying to figure out like, okay, this is gonna affect my two-year-old too. We went to a ton of appointments. Pretty much every week, we had at least one appointment. Um, and essentially his heart over the next you know couple of weeks and months continued to get worse and worse and i think when a doctor tells you that a heart transplant is a possibility to me that should be the worst case scenario except the worst case scenario was that while he was in utero that his heart could just stop working at any time so you know, during that time, it's normally such a celebration. And I, I did not get his nursery ready. And it's so funny. I don't know why this was like the hardest, one of the hardest things for me. I, cu I couldn't bring myself to set up a nursery that I wasn't gonna use. It quickly became apparent in my like hours and hours and days of research that um, like we were just not gonna know until yeah. Hudson was ready to come. God was ready for Hudson to come. Like there was not like there was nothing we could do beyond what the doctors were telling us. It made it um, a natural path to just like no distractions. We're going straight to God and trusting Him. So we went in for an appointment on a Monday in January and he made it um, to full term. So we went in for our appointment that Monday and they said, you know, we'd love to schedule your C-section for this week. And we were like, okay, get us in as soon as you can. When they first pulled him out, um, it was cool because I had a clear curtain so I was able to see Hudson come out, um, which again, I just wanted to, um, take in all of the moments because I didn't know how many moments I was going to have. So I just wanted to see everything. And they pulled him out and he was wailing, which I feel like as a parent is like the best feeling you can possibly have. Like, oh my gosh, they're crying, they're crying. Um, and the doctor pulls him out and she says, wow, look at the size of his feet which was not at all was I, what I was expecting them to say. You know, we're kind of in this high risk situation. Like everybody was smiling. The doctor seemed very calm. Like there wasn't that, that crush of medical personnel that we were kind of almost expecting. They bring him over to me. And honestly, I don't know how long it was that he was there. It felt a lot longer than it was, but they put him next to my face for a couple of seconds and then they took him away and cleaned him up and did, you know, a couple preliminary like APGAR tests and stuff. And really like over the next couple of hours and days, um, 
all of the next steps really continue to go pretty well. We were expecting a three month stay in the NICU was our best guess. And on the eighth day, the doctor said, I think you can go home tomorrow. And so I remember getting on Amazon, literally sitting in the NICU in the rocking chair, getting on Amazon and Target, buying all the diapers, all the wipes, all the things that you really need to have a baby come home. And I just feel like, you know, from his first moment, literally when they commented on the size of his feet and how big he was, like his size, I feel like is God showing off and being like, look how healthy he is, look how strong he is. God knew that we were expecting someone who needed so much hands-on involvement from us and care and we didn't know how many moments we'd be able to steal with and and then to have the um, little hulk baby like the, the this giant kid you know all of that feels like a gift um, a gift we didn't expect or didn't expect for a long time that we view everything now like as such a gift that we didn't think we were going to have these times with him but that God was working behind the scenes on our behalf this whole time and that he had something really really good for us not just like this really hard lesson um, that we would learn through and grow through but like this really good gift at the end of it Honestly, like I think my faith was just so small um, and I really didn't expect God to do something this good for us.